Get ready for the smartest bundle in streaming. Six streaming services for the intellectually curious. Featuring Curiosity Stream with the best collection of documentary films and TV shows. Psalm TV and great stories from the world of wine. Taste Made for the fun side of food and travel. Topic with the best thrillers and crime stories. And so much more. From nature to history, technology to food, mystery to adventure. Get six streaming services for one low price. And less than $6 a month, it's the best deal in streaming. Learn more and sign up now at smartbundle.com. 57 days ago, I woke up to find that all color had drained from my face. My pores were gone. Where there used to be tiny black heads was only smooth, even skin. The bump of my nose had turned into a smooth bridge, ending in a sharper tip, and my originally round chin had turned more pointed. My lips had turned as white as paper, and when I raised my hand to wipe over my eyebrows, the short, dark hairs came off and fell into the sink below the mirror I was looking into. I shut my eyes and ran my thumb over the other one as well. Now both were gone. I leaned closer to the mirror. My eyes were the same, yet the tiny wrinkles I used to have in their corners had disappeared. When I opened my mouth, I found that my teeth had blended together to form two closed, seamless white rows. I was terrified, to say the least. Confused. It didn't feel real. Was I dreaming this? I rubbed my eyes, only to gasp in shock when I pulled back to find long, black lashes in my hands. I looked up at the mirror again, the face of a mannequin staring back. Then I fell unconscious. I woke back up in bed. Dana and Michael were sitting by my side. They adopted me at the age of eight, and have shown me nothing but love and doting care throughout the years but I could never refer to them as mom and dad without feeling incredibly uncomfortable. I had expected them to look scared and worried, but they appeared to be weirdly elated. Dana reached down to the small tray resting on her thighs. It held a wet cloth, a cup of tea, and a little plate with some pancakes on it. She grabbed the cloth and gently began dabbing my eyes and forehead with it. When she removed it, I could see that the remaining hairs of my brows and eyelashes were stuck to it. I slowly sat up in bed. I wanted to say something, ask what was going on, but noticed in horror that I could hardly move my lips. Opening and closing my mouth worked well enough, but I couldn't contort it properly to form words. What? I managed to press out. Dana smiled. It's okay. Christine, here. She lifted the cup of tea to my lips. Have some of this. It'll calm you down. I obediently took the cup out of her hands and drank a few sips of tea. Sit up straight, she instructed me, as she proceeded to place the tray on my knees. She let me hand her the teacup and gestured for me to eat. My gaze flitting between Michael and her, I grabbed the fork and knife lying on either side of the plate and began to eat. As my teeth repeatedly came down onto the pieces of syrup-drenched pancake, slowly and laboriously turning them to mush, I felt tears form in my eyes. My hopes of this being a bad dream were fading. Is it good? Michael asked. I nodded quietly, suppressing a sob as I swallowed my bite of pancake. You're probably very scared right now, he said softly. But don't worry, it'll all be fine. I know it's hard now but it's all going to be over soon. I tilted my head at him, trying to utter a question through stiff, unresponsive lips. 
You'll understand soon enough, he replied, smiling gently as he took out a hairbrush, leaned in, and began to run it through my short, light brown locks, carefully arranging them into large, orderly curls again. You must be very scared. Trust me, though. We'll take care of you. They knew what was happening. As soon as I realized this, I felt my stomach churn. I slowly laid down my cutlery and raised my head. Tears were now freely streaming down my numb cheeks. In the following days, Dana and Michael's behavior towards me changed. They were still friendly and affectionate, but something about the way they were acting was lacking sincereness. It felt staged and disconcerting. I would catch them talking behind my back more and more often as well. For example, one time they were having a conversation in the kitchen and instantly fell silent when I came in. And then there was the thing about the doctor. Of course, I wanted to get my face back. I thought I had fallen ill or something. However, my requests of making an appointment or going straight to the hospital were gently but firmly denied. I wasn't allowed to go outside, which I didn't notice at first since there was no way I could leave the house looking like I did anyways. But then I listened in on Dana calling my boss at the clothing store I work at and telling them I had come down with a bad flu. She said it would take a while for me to come back in. At the time, I didn't really think much of it, at least not as much as I do now. Michael and Dana would continue to keep me inside. In fact, they decreed strict bed rest, which is where they proceeded to keep me. Michael bought me a TV for my room and set it up right in front of my bed so I could see it from where I was resting. Dana would continuously cook my favorite meals and bring them to me. One of them would be by my side almost all day. We would play games or read together. I loved to paint, so Dana carried my little desk with all my equipment on it over to my bedside. She'd even sit still and let me paint her. It was nice being pampered like that. It took my mind off my situation. In hindsight, that was probably what they had intended in the first place. My love for them and my comfort made me blind. They did give me an explanation for the disappearance of my face. It's a family curse, Dana told me. At a certain age, our kids lose their facial features. It was like that with me too. I, it can stay like that for weeks or even months, but it will go back to normal after a while. I thought it wasn't going to affect you, but I guess I was wrong. It's not that bad though. All you have to do is rest. She then kissed me on the forehead and handed me the remote control. I look scary, don't I? I asked. That was what I wanted to ask at least. I still couldn't really move my lips too well. So what came out was probably just a hopeless string of barely comprehensible words. Dana, however, seemed to understand them just fine. Not to me, sweetheart, she replied, leaning in to give me a hug. I felt so safe. Everything was nice and warm. I enjoyed eating tasty things and just playing around all day. I believed Dana and Michael. I had no reason not to. That was until I overheard a conversation between them that had probably not been meant for my ears. It was late at night, and I was half asleep already when I heard Dana crying in her room and Michael's bedroom. Concerned, I silently got out of bed and snuck downstairs. I was about to knock on their door when I heard Michael speak up. I know, baby. 
I'll miss her too. It's natural. We've been with her for twelve years. Of course we've grown attached. But it'll be worth it, don't you think? I don't know anymore. I heard Dana sob in response. I love her. I, I really do. I miss Marlene. I can't think of anything but her all day. But I don't know if I can go through with this. She even looks a little bit like her. Well, used to. But she's not her. You gotta remember that. Michael sighed and I heard the mattress creak as he sat down beside his wife. There's no turning back now anyways. We'll make it this time. I know we will. The thing with Phoenix was a disaster, but this time we'll make it work. Just, just think of how happy you'll be when Marlene is finally back, alright? There was a long pause before Dana sniffled and whimpered one last time. Alright. I returned to my room without making a sound. My heart was pounding in my chest. I know they were talking about me. As I said earlier, I was taken in by them when I was eight years old. And I'm twenty now. My mind was racing with faint ideas of what they might do to me. What they wanted to use me for. I hadn't heard of anyone named Marlene or Phoenix before. I was now certain they were keeping something from me. I felt like I couldn't trust them anymore. Even though I wanted nothing more than that. I cherished them. And that was exactly three days ago. I know because that same night, the faceless man came into my room for the first time. I had gone back to bed after listening in on the strange exchange. Part of me was still hoping it had simply been a weird dream, and that I just needed to wake up. The best way to do that would be to going back to sleep, right? So I laid back down and shut my eyes. I found that I couldn't really rest, though. I tossed and turned in bed, kicking the sheets and trying in vain to nestle into my pillow. I ended up lying on my back, and that's when the strangest feeling overcame me. I slowly opened my eyes. I almost screamed when I saw a face staring down at me, but before any sound could leave my lips, a hand had pressed itself over my mouth, forcing me to stay silent. The face hovering above my own was as pale as a sheet. Its chin and nose were unnaturally sharp, its lips and cheeks void of all color. It was so white it almost seemed to shine in the darkness. It was completely hairless, no brows, no eyelashes. It was then that I realized that this other person, this intruder, looked just like me. It was hard to tell at first, but something about them felt male. Maybe it was the shape of his eyes or the size of his hand, which he proceeded to slowly and carefully remove from my mouth. He raised a finger to his lips, and I nodded quietly. We stared at each other for a while before he reached out to take my hand. He gently pried it open, turning my palm to face him. He then began to draw onto my skin with his finger. It took him a few tries for me to finally understand that he was writing something. At first, a simple line, followed by him stroking over my open palm, as if to erase it or something. It tickled a bit, but apart from that, it was almost affectionate. I shook my head and let out a low hum, trying to tell him I didn't get it. He looked up at me and let go of a soft breath. He sounded exhausted. Still, he lowered his head and repeated the motion. I. I nodded eagerly, pointing at him to communicate that I finally understood. I could still see little apart from the faint glow of the white color of his face in the darkness. But for a second, 
It almost looked like he was attempting to smile. The corners of his stiff lips were pointing up ever so slightly. He proceeded to write letters onto my open palm. His fingertip was cold and almost sharp. It drew chilling lines onto my sweat-laced warm skin. I watch you sleep. As much as this first sentence may have frightened me, I soon understood the necessity of keeping up communication with the man without a face. Ever since then, he's been coming in through the window every night. We talk using my phone now, typing out our messages to each other. He's made it very clear that I'm in grave danger, even though he is still holding off on explaining the details. I asked him if we should call the police, but he seems to be certain that it would only get me into more trouble. Maybe that's because Michael works for the police department, or maybe it's simply because I can't really talk, and writing the cops an email doesn't sound too helpful. Instead, we have been planning our escape. Tonight, the man without a face will wait until Michael and Dana are asleep and bring a ladder to my window. How he has managed to climb up here without one in the first place is beyond me, but I don't really care either. By now, I just want to get out of here. Dana and Michael have been keeping the keys to themselves. I don't know where they're hiding them, but I check the doors and lower windows from time to time when nobody's watching. They're all locked. I'm not sure if they know that I know they're basically holding me captive, but I'm certain that if I stay, something will happen to me. Something much worse than losing my face. I have to trust the faceless man with my life. There's no other way. Maybe it's due to our identical condition, but I feel strangely connected to him. I pray I'm not wrong about it. Tonight I'll find out. Tonight we'll flee. It worked. The faceless man came for me last night. I don't think Dana and Michael noticed anything at all. They were fast asleep when we left. The faceless man took the ladder he used with him and dumped it in a nearby ditch. I had already packed a small bag the night before. My phone, laptop, wallet, all the essentials and a bottle of water. When he came to get me, I was lying wide awake in bed, the bag hidden under my blanket. Dressed in simple sneakers and a white summer dress, a convenient but not exactly smart choice, as I believe it may have heightened the chance of us of being spotted in the darkness. I climbed out the window and let the ladder guide me to the ground. The night air was engulfing me, cleansing me from the stale, oppressed atmosphere that had taken over my former home weeks ago. I was so happy. This faceless man and I began to walk. I didn't know where we were headed, but I followed blindly. Anywhere was probably better than home. He led me away from the streets of the suburban neighborhood where Dana and Michael's house was located. We reached a nearby country road which parts the few trees on our side from the deeper woods on the other. Cars had always been rare to come by, but the faceless man plopped down on a rock right beside the road nonetheless. He motioned for me to take a seat somewhere as well. I took out my phone and wrote a line in its notes application, asking what we were waiting for. A car with only a man and a woman inside. That was all he answered before handing me back my phone. It left me fairly confused. However, when the headlights of an oncoming vehicle cut brightly through the darkness, he stood up and without a second of hesitation, walked over to the middle of the road where he came to a halt. There he stood, wide-legged and unmoving, and waited. 
What are you doing? I called out to him, beginning to get a bit unnerved. Of course, the sentence came out as nothing more than clumsy bits of vocalization. Nothing I want to say sounds clear enough through my numb lips anymore. To my surprise, however, he seemed to understand. Or maybe it was simply the fear in my voice that alerted him. He turned his head to me, and once again, I thought I could see him smile ever so slightly. The car came closer and closer. It wasn't driving very fast, and upon spotting him standing in its way, it slowed down and eventually came to a stop in front of him. Still the faceless man didn't move. The driver's side door was opened, and a young man got out. "'Excuse me?' he shouted, clearly addressing the faceless man. I remained hidden, moving behind one of the trees. I somehow believed that being out in the open wasn't what I wanted right now. "'Hello?' the driver repeated. Silence, and no response. With every quiet second that passed, the man from the car appeared to grow increasingly unsettled. I felt a sliver of guilt creep up inside of me. Where was he going with this? Are you okay, man? The stranger called out again. He took a step towards the faceless man. The passenger side door was cracked open, but the driver quickly gestured into its direction, and I could hear him utter something along the lines of, No, stay inside. He continued approaching the faceless man at an uncertain pace. I wasn't sure if he had taken note of his missing features yet, but when he came to a halt right in front of him and let out a blood-curdling scream, this question was answered as well. By the time the man from the car attempted to stumble backwards, the faceless man grabbed him by the collar and punched him square across the face with his other hand. The stranger gasped, and I could hear a shriek coming from inside the car. Stop! I yelled dashing forth from my hiding spot. The faceless man raised his hand, motioning for me to stay still, and for a few seconds I obeyed. The passenger side door swung open, and a woman staggered out. I could see the panicked look on her face for just the blink of an eye before she began to run down the road, into the direction opposite from us. This seemed to alert the faceless man. He appeared to have knocked the guy from the car out completely by then, seeing as when he let go of his collar, he sank to the ground. I stumbled forward, trying to catch him, before his head could make contact with the rough pavement. To my surprise, I succeeded. The air was knocked out of me as he fell into my arms. The faceless man had run after the passenger, who was still clumsily attempting to flee. She was wearing high heels, which were making it hard for her to get away. The faceless man didn't even need to catch up with her, I watched in horror as her weight shifted to the side, and she fell. I don't know if it was her ankle snapping, but she let out a sharp scream of pain and hit the ground almost instantly. The faceless man slowed down until he halted in front of her. He looked around before bending down and picking her up. She wasn't really struggling, just crying and thrashing around in his arms. He walked over to me and carelessly dropped her next to the man she'd been driving with. I was weeping myself at this point, kneeling on the ground, holding the unconscious stranger and staring up at the faceless man. I felt the tears running down my cold cheeks. I was shivering. He let go of a breath that almost sounded like a sigh and lowered himself down beside me. He wrapped his arms around me. 
At first, it felt like he was trying to squeeze the air out of me, but I eventually recognized it to merely be a very clumsy embrace. I didn't really feel like hugging him back, and still sobbing, wiggled my way out of his arms, careful not to drop the unconscious man's head, which I was still holding up. The faceless man sighed once again before standing up and walking around me. He gently removed my hands from the driver's limp body and laid it out on the pavement before him. Bending over him, he began to touch his face. He ran his fingers over his cheeks, his eyelids, brows, and lips. My eyes widened when I saw the color slowly beginning to drain from the man's face. His lips turned white. The hairs of his brows and lashes vanished underneath my companion's fingertips. His nose slimmed into a smoother, pointier one. The faceless man raised his head. My jaw dropped. It was his now. It was the stranger's features, but on his formerly nondescript face. Meanwhile, the driver of the car had been left with his mannequin-like emptiness. We were in luck. I almost jumped at the sound of the voice. He had only been able to produce small gasps and moans before. Now he was contorting his mouth, grimacing and frowning as if testing out his new face, trying to get used to it. How? I tried to press out. Whether he understood or not made no difference. Put your hands on her face, he commanded, pointing at the crying woman. I hesitated. He groaned and turned the girl onto her back and pressed her to the ground by her shoulders. Be careful. They get ideas sometimes. I got my hand bitten before. I didn't want to. I really didn't. But I didn't want to wait for the faceless man to get angry at me either. I placed my palms on the woman's cheeks, smearing the fresh, warm tears on her skin as I began to let them roam. My own face started to tingle, and my hands grew oddly warm. It felt like the pressure that had kept my mouth closed and my forehead stiff was slowly draining from my head. I watched as, under the touch of my fingers, the girl's face began to turn into the same mannequin visage I had sported seconds prior. Her eyes fell shut, and her head sank to the ground. Help me get them up, the man ordered. I was too dazed to refuse. We grabbed the two people and placed them inside the trunk of their own car, before getting inside, him taking the wheel. I dared to take a quick glance into the rearview mirror, leaning over to inspect my face, only that it wasn't mine. It wasn't me looking back. I hurriedly turned my head again. Once the formerly faceless man had started driving, not a single word would go on to leave his mouth until I spotted the bright lights of a rest stop in the darkness ahead of us. He pulled up outside. It was one of those large gas stations connected to a few small fast food restaurants and convenience stores. He sighed and leaned back in his seat, turning to give me a stern look. You're kind of shaken up now. I get that. No worries, though. Soon as we're done with our faces, we'll get those two in the trunk to safety. So I don't want you doing anything stupid when we're in there. We need food. He smiled softly, but it didn't really come off as too warm. If you're good, I'll let you choose what we're going to have for dinner. What's happening? I whispered, stifling a sob. He growled ever so slightly. Would you please not start crying again? He hissed. It's getting on my nerves. I swallowed, nodding and breathing a little. I'm sorry, 
before daring to look up at him again. So, I found out about borrowing faces soon after I ran away. You've seen how it works. It lasts for about 10 hours, during which they're unconscious. Then we go back to blank, and they go back to normal. You can't fight it. It happens on its own. So apart from a few bruises, we didn't cause any lasting damage back there. He cleared his throat. I'm not a talky guy, I'm sorry. But by you doing something stupid, my men drawing attention to us in any way. I hope you're not dumb enough to believe I'm your enemy. Or that you can or should run away or alert anyone. As soon as your face is blank again, everyone who sees you will run anyways. What I'm trying to say is, you have absolutely nowhere else to go, so stay. He fell silent, staring me right in the eyes. You understand that, don't you? Yes, yes, I muttered, unable to break his gaze. And you promise you won't cause any trouble? Yes, much obliged. With that, he got out of the car, and I followed at a slower pace. When we were walking up to the store, I kept looking over my shoulder. I was way too nervous to stay still. Do you have any money on you? I asked. Of course. I paused, trying to think. There had been something I'd been meaning to ask him, but it took me a few seconds to remember. Hey, what's your name? Phoenix. I'm Phoenix. I'm Christine, now shush, he interrupted me. We had reached the entrance and the glass door slid open for us. The bright white light stung my eyes and I turned my head. The man, Phoenix, gave me a quick smile which was probably meant to reassure me, but sadly failed to do so. I was unsure of whether it was the fact that his face wasn't his own, but every single friendly expression he would attempt to muster looked utterly forged and alarming. Look around a little. It'll calm you down. See if you want anything. Don't hold back. We need lots of stuff anyways. I nodded and reluctantly walked off, watching as he disappeared between the aisles. My heart was still pounding rapidly in my chest, and my ears were ringing. I tried to focus on the products I was looking at, wandering from the liquor section over to the magazines, until I eventually ended up in the candy aisle. Sugar has always had a way of soothing my nerves, so I picked up a few things from there, and then went to look for Phoenix. He was already standing around near the cash register, seemingly waiting for me. I wordlessly swept up to him, and we joined the short line. Once it was our turn, Phoenix unloaded the ungodly amount of groceries he had been carrying onto the counter. I spotted a concerning amount of tiny bottles he had probably picked up on his own trip to the liquor aisle earlier. I timidly placed my few packets of candies on top of the heap and looked up at Phoenix. He barely seemed to acknowledge my presence, instead focusing on his purchase. Once it was all bagged, I offered to carry some of it, but he declined and scooped it all up restoring the awkward silence between us as we walked back to the car and continued driving. After what must have been another thirty minutes on the road, Phoenix steered the car off onto a gravel path, leading away from the streets and deeper into the woods that had been flanking us the whole time. I had already been nervous enough with just the darkness outside, but driving past the tree line felt as if the forest had swallowed us whole. Eventually, Phoenix stopped the car and got out. Welcome home, he said dryly once I joined him outside. We were standing in front of a log cabin. 
Phoenix motioned for me to get out our shopping bags while he pulled out a set of keys to let us in. It was warm inside. The gentle light of the ceiling lamps was quick to chase away all that had made me shiver back outside. The cabin wasn't too remote. I watched as Phoenix stored all of our purchases in the fridge and pantries of the small section of the building that was his kitchen. Feel free to get comfortable. Bathroom's behind the little door back there, and you can just go ahead and watch TV or something. If you're hungry, well, you saw where I put the stuff. Don't hold back. Better get used to everything. You're going to be here for a long time. He paused, frowning. Don't look in the freezer yet, though, if you happen to stumble across it, okay? I raised a brow. Why not? Just don't, okay? Okay. Okay, he repeated, letting go of a short sigh. If someone knocks, don't let them in. It's not me, I got the keys. Keep that in mind. I'll take care of our little problem in the trunk now. The plan is to get the car close to the rest stop. Then I'll get them back on their seats and leave them there to sleep. I'll have to walk home, so it might take a while. Don't worry, and if you get tired, don't wait for me to come back. Probably better for you to get some rest soon anyways. I waved him goodbye as he walked out the door. A few seconds later, I could hear the car door slam and the engine sputter to life. I'm not sure how long it's been since he left, but I've decided to take his advice to heart. And don't worry. I'm not sure how long it's been since he left, but I've decided to take his advice to heart and don't worry. Instead, I'm using the time he's not around to cry right now. I feel like I've been going through every emotion a person can have in one single day. Relief, fear, sadness, concern, guilt. I try not to think about the two people we ambushed in the woods. I need to believe they're okay. I've never hurt anyone before or even witnessed anything like it for that matter. I hate myself for letting it happen. I pray they won't remember, and that neither of them are hurt. But all I know for sure is what Phoenix said about the works of borrowing faces. At least he was right about something, though. I realized it while I was waiting. I truly do not have anywhere else to go. I fell asleep on the couch with the TV still on last night, and woke up to Phoenix standing above me. I sat up with a start, only to notice that my cheeks and forehead were feeling stiff again, not even my lips parted on demand. A closer look at Phoenix revealed that he too had adopted the same mannequin-like features as before. I let out a shaking sigh, almost a sob, as the realization of my face once again being gone sank in. A rumbling sound akin to a sigh or a growl came deep from somewhere within Phoenix's chest, as he sat down beside me and wrapped his arms around my shoulders. I didn't resist when he pulled me closer and awkwardly patted my back. He then reached into his pocket and pulled out a few handwritten notes. They weren't exactly easy to read, and some of the letters looked more like scribbles than anything legible. Once I had finally gotten the hang of it, though, I realized what it detailed. This is what it read. My parents are Dana and Michael. I had an older sister named Marlene who died in a car crash. This is going to sound crazy, but I bet you're already used to it by now. My parents contacted her. There's something beyond our realm of understanding. There's a place where dead people go, and when they reached out, Marlene responded from the beyond. She said she needed a body, but most importantly, a face. 
Marlene was very beautiful, and I guess a bit vain. They'd loved her more than anything else in this world. So my parents started to do some research. I was much too little to understand anything about it at the time, and even the things I know now are just what I pieced together later on. Anyways, they wanted to clear my face for Marlene so she could shape it into something of her own. When they were done, they set up a sacrificial site in our backyard. Late at night, they dragged me out there. They'd painted strange symbols on the ground and dressed me up in clothing that had once belonged to Marlene. They sang songs in a language I didn't understand, and I remember being in pain. And then suddenly, they just stopped. Michael cursed and said something about how she didn't want to be a boy, and then they tried to take me back inside. I got loose, though, somehow, and I ran away. I was a kid, and of course I could hardly think straight, so instead of looking for neighbors, I took off into the woods. I just sort of kept on walking until some old guy picked me up. I didn't want to go with him at first, but eventually I did. It wasn't violent or anything, and this is where he brought me. I could already write at that time, so I tried to tell him what happened that way. He understood pretty well, and he kept me here in a secret. I know from the news that my disappearance was ruled as just that. No one ever came here to ask any questions. My parents probably think I'm dead anyways. After reading, I looked around for a pen, and after signing it to him, Phoenix quickly got up and got one that had been sitting on one of the shelves for me. I turned the piece of paper and quickly scribbled on its empty backside. Did you ever try getting your face back? Phoenix shook his head and motioned for me to hand him the pen. I did, and he wrote a large no, with two exclamation points right underneath my question. Why? I wrote back. Too dangerous. Not worth it. I have no idea how they took it from me in the first place. I doubt it's something that can be restored. I sighed. He was right. It was probably safer here, for a little while at least. I took up the pen again and quickly scribbled down another question. What did you mean when you told me about those people knocking on the door? Phoenix tensed and grabbed the pen. He went back into the kitchen and sat down to write. He came back after a few minutes and held the notes he had prepared out to me. The knocking started up not too long ago. I was just hanging around minding my own business when all of a sudden there was this loud banging on the front door. I looked but there was nobody outside so I went and locked myself inside the bathroom. Figured I'd be safe there. But the knocking went on, and it seemed to come from all around me, like they were banging against the walls from outside. It lasted for three hours. I know because I started counting the seconds after a while. I sat inside the bathroom, covering my ears for three whole hours. It's happened like nine times since then, and I feel like they're getting more aggressive every time. I don't know who it is, or what, but if you hear it, find somewhere to hide, and don't leave that spot until you can't hear the knocking anymore. Better prepare yourself mentally, because I really believe it will happen again soon. I might not be around when it does, but I hope I will be, at least for the first time. It's really hard to get used to. We'd need to hide in different places, though. It'll make us harder to find if they do manage to get in somehow. I nodded slowly and gave him a thumbs up just to show I'd understood. Phoenix seemed to relax a little. His shoulders dropped and he gave me a pat on the arm. Here's the thing. I don't think that Phoenix is a very stable person, 
but he's the only person I'll have around for a while. Maybe forever. But I'm trying to stay positive. Either way, I'm aware I will probably be spending an awful lot of time around him in the near future, so I figured it would be best to get on good terms with him. I was certain if we would just get used to one another, we could even become something like friends. At the very least, I do not want him to get pissed at me. Lord knows what he's capable of when he's mad. Therefore, I started to keep him company around the house. It was very pleasant at first. I helped him cook lunch and we ate together. I still have trouble chewing and sometimes even swallowing, but it was nice to be full again, and I suppose practice matters. Afterwards, we cleaned up and sat down to watch some TV. Apparently, we're both into painting tutorials. I like them because they're relaxing, and I learned a lot through them. I'd assume it's the same with Phoenix, but we didn't write for a while after the explanation about the knocking, so I have no clue. I thought it was a good start. All was well until suddenly, Phoenix rose from his seat. His eyes were darting around the room, his head snapping into different directions as if he was following a moving sound. I got up as well, tugging on his sleeve and trying to get him to somehow communicate to me what was wrong. He turned to me with what I interpreted to be bewilderment, and then pointed at the front door. Suddenly, it clicked. Someone was banging on the door and walls just like he had described it to me, except that only Phoenix could hear it. There was nothing there. Deciding to play along, I hurried to look as afraid as possible as well. Phoenix's hands were trembling when he rested them on my shoulders and ushered me out of the living room, down the sole, tiny hallway in the cabin, and into what looked to be a bedroom. He pointed at a large closet and gave me a gentle shove into its direction, before turning and presumably making his way over to his own hiding spot. So here I am now, sitting amidst heaps of dusty clothing and typing away on my phone. It's been two or three hours already, I think. I hope Phoenix will come to get me, because pretending to know when whatever he was hearing stops is going to be a bit difficult. I'm dreading his reaction if I were to tell him it's all in his head. However, now that I've had time to think, I have a question which I, for some reason, didn't come up with sooner. Phoenix told me about an older man the owner of this cabin and the one who took him in. If he indeed lives with him, then where is that guy? My mind keeps wandering back to the freezer I'm not allowed to look into. You won't be hearing from Christine anymore. I know because I choked her to death. I told her I'd go out this morning. The sun wasn't even up yet. I was planning on wandering up the road to see if someone would come by. It was really early, but someone almost always does, and you never know when food gets sparse. Now that I had someone else to feed, I felt it best to be prepared. When I left, Christine was still very much alive. She was watching TV and eating gummy bears. She waved me goodbye when I walked out the door. I was actually thinking it was kind of nice having someone around again. There's only so much you can do on your own all day. In what short time she had been with me, I had been in pretty high spirits. The little bitch just had to ruin it, didn't she? I didn't find anyone on the road, so I came back home after two hours or so. I rounded the house as I usually do, since there could always be something amiss. I dread the day I overlook a porous spot on one of the walls, and those things that keep banging on the doors gets inside. The room I keep the freezer in is really small, 
It's the washing and storage room too. So I guess it's like a very cramped substitute for a basement. Except that it's surface level, of course. There's still a small window in there though, and I never bothered with blinds. So you can look inside as well as out. So when I walked by, I almost didn't notice anything. But there was this sliver of white that made me stop in my tracks. I turned around and walked up to the window, and there she was. She was standing right beside the damp freezer, staring inside. Her face is as still as can be, but I swear I could still see the shock in her eyes. It was almost like she had sensed my presence somehow when her head spun around and she saw me. I took off immediately, but by the time I reached the door, I found that it had been thrown open and I could see Christine running off into the woods. I'm glad I keep some of my tools right next to the front door. It's where my shovel was standing, leaning against the wall, too. I grabbed it and pulled the door shut before running after her. I'd need it. I'm a fast runner. Christine wasn't. I caught up with her rather quickly. I pushed her to the ground and turned her around to face me. She didn't scream when I wrapped my hands around her neck. She couldn't. Screaming is a little hard when you can't open your mouth, you know? She kept letting out these pathetic little gurgles, though. Killing her wasn't fun. I almost felt a bit sorry when she stopped struggling and eventually fell limp underneath me. It was the same with Bill back in the day. Bill had it coming, too. When he took me in, he was nice to me. The older I got, the more we seemed to get into fights, though. Then a few months ago, he went too far. Threatened to kick me out like some kind of dog. Said I could get food on my own from now on, see how I'd do for myself. I'm not helpless. I could have taken care of my own needs, had I wished. What I didn't like was the way old Bill was talking to me. You should have watched that mouth of his. After I shut him up, it got awfully silent around here. I guess that's why I went back home to check up on things. Or maybe just to hear some voices again that weren't coming from the TV. It's probably also why I got Christine out of there. And now her. I haven't known her for long, that's true. But somehow taking her out really made me feel worse than the thing with Bill. Maybe it's because she's technically family, or because I haven't been around any woman since I was a kid. Made her sort of exotic. Or maybe it's because I still had that mental image of her lying in bed and sleeping stuck in my head. She looked so peaceful then. She doesn't know. She's lying beside me, all motionless, with her face on the ground. I turned her over since I didn't want her to look at me. I know she's not seeing me or anything. Not anymore. But it had me feeling off nonetheless. She should look calm and tranquil, like she had when I'd watched her sleep. But for some reason she doesn't. Maybe it's the dirt on her dress or the way she's lying there, with her arms kind of twisted underneath her her hair all messy and those scratches everywhere on her skin. I thought she was like me. She was supposed to be like me. She was not, though. She was trash. And didn't give a damn about me, just like Dana and Michael and Bill. I dug a hole for her already. It's worn me out, so now I'm sitting here for a while. Her phone was in her purse, and she had it with her when she ran away. I read what she wrote didn't exactly lift my mood. I'll bury her in a few minutes. Hopefully I'll feel better when she's underground. The thing is, I was going to take care of her, 
All she had to do was follow my rules. They were simple, too. I don't think I was asking too much. Mom and Dad should have taught her some manners while they were at it. I offered her a home, food and drink, and she still couldn't do so much as listen to a single easy demand. I was in my right when I did what I did. I think I'm going to miss her. I used to miss Bill, too. Might take a bit, but I'll get over it. It's her fault. She should be happy I made it as quick on her as I did. I'm not sure what it was Phoenix had been meaning to write before I knocked him out with his shovel. So much more, maybe, so much worse. Hi, it's Christine and I'm not dead. Just shaken, a bit worse for wear and completely clueless on what to do now. Phoenix described the events leading up to me getting up from where I was lying and playing dead pretty well. I know for certain I blacked out for at least a few minutes back there, and to be honest, I don't know how I didn't die. He had his hands around my throat for so long, and he was squeezing so hard. Who knows? I guess with me being able to borrow other people's faces, anything is possible. At first I wasn't sure if he was alive after I hit him over the head. I remember slowly sitting up to find him cowering next to a pit in the dirt, staring at my phone. I thought I could hear my own heartbeat over the sounds of the forest itself as I staggered to my feet as quietly as I could, spotting the shovel that was lying discarded halfway between him and me. I inched forward, holding my breath. I carefully picked it up and raised it over his head, taking aim. By the time he turned around, I had already swung at him. The last thing I saw and heard of him before he dropped to the ground was his eyes growing wide and a loud gasp as the shovel connected with the side of his empty, snow-white face. As my makeshift weapon fell from my hands, I finally dared to breathe normally again. Once I had caught my breath again, I checked that of Phoenix. He was still alive. I could feel his pulse when I rested my fingers on his wrist, and his chest was rising and falling rhythmically. I grabbed my phone from where he had dropped it and stuffed it back into my purse. It took me a few minutes to decide on what to do with him. I could have killed him if I'd hit him some more. It would have been the safer option, but unlike him, I know I couldn't live with anybody's blood on my hands. Leaving him in the woods would mean having him run around unrestrained once he would wake up again. So I ended up dragging him all the way back to the cabin. I brought him into this small washing room, the same one where I'd found the freezer and used both rope and cable binders as well as duct tape to tie him up. These were all things I found around the house. I admit I used more than just one of these on his wrists, and ankles especially, but knowing he was strong, he would probably try to break free the second he'd come to, and if I wouldn't take precautions, his chances of success would be too high for my liking. As I said, I don't know what to do. Part of me thinks I should go back to Dana and Michael's place. It's then we've started all this. They're the root of this problem, so if there's a way to end it, it has to be connected to them. I don't know if I will ever have my face back, but the least I can do is regain some degree of safety, and that may mean I'll have to get rid of some enemies. I already said I didn't want anyone's blood on my hands, but that doesn't mean that this is a hopeless endeavor. You'll probably also want to know what was in that freezer Phoenix didn't want me looking into. It was the corpse of an old bearded man, I don't know for how long he's been in there. How long can dead bodies stay intact when they're being stored like that? 
Still, it didn't look like he'd been in there for just a few days. But that wasn't the only reason. I ran from Phoenix straight away, before even thinking of asking him to explain. Pieces from the old man's flesh were missing. It looked like they had been cut out with a knife, rather precisely at that. The worst thing, however, was that there was a single, large bite mark on his left cheek. One that could only match two rows of seamless teeth. I think I'm living on borrowed time. I messed up. Worse yet, I'll be on my way to Dana and Michael's house soon. I'm glad I ate something and slept for a few hours yesterday night. I think it might have been my last opportunity to do so in a while. All hell broke loose this very morning. The sun hadn't even started to rise when I was startled awake by a loud thumping noise, followed by a clang. I had been lying on the sofa. Phoenix was still tied up in the washing room, or so I thought. The door that separates it from the kitchen and living room area doesn't have a lock on it, but I pushed a large cupboard and a heavy armchair in front of it to block it. I sat up instantly on high alert. It was then that I realized that I, in all my haste and panic, had forgotten about the window in the washing room. I tensed for a second. The possibility of him getting out this way seemed all too threatening, only to remember it was way too small for him to fit. Or was it? I couldn't stand not knowing for sure. Phoenix's flashlight was resting on a shelf in the kitchen. Armed with this, I made my way outside, my heart pounding like a sledgehammer. The night was quiet, ominously so. There were no insects chirping, no twigs snapping under some forest critter's feet, not even an owl hooting. I rounded the house's corner until I stood outside the washroom window. It was only then that I dared to make use of my torch. I turned it on and aimed it at the dark window, only to let out a startled scream upon finding Phoenix's mannequin face staring back at me from behind the broken glass. I almost dropped the flashlight and hurriedly backed off, stumbling in the process. I quickly clapped my footing and straightened up, still breathing heavily as I held Phoenix's cold, hateful gaze. Neither of us made a sound, not that we would have been able to form words anyway, or at least that's what I thought. The faceless man, however, looked at me, his eyes sharp and piercing like he was staring right into my soul, and then he opened his mouth just a bit and spoke. His stiff, colorless lips parted only reluctantly. I could see it. It was like his body was fighting his will to talk. His upper lip rose over his white, seamless row of teeth, contorting in a grotesque manner as his tongue sluggishly moved behind them to forcefully shape his voice into a single sentence. It came out slow and mangled. It reminded me of someone playing a recording of somebody talking in reverse, except that I could actually understand what he was saying somehow. I'm going to break every bone in your body. I took a deep, shaky breath, staring at him with wide eyes before finally getting my frightened, trembling body to turn around and leave. I rushed back inside and proceeded to push the small table standing in front of the sofa, in front of the washing room door as well. Not that it would have changed anything. He was strong, incredibly strong even, and there was no way I could face him. I figured there had to be a rifle or something like that for hunting somewhere around the cabin, but I have never held a weapon like that in my own hands, much less used one. Trying to hurt him with a kitchen knife 
didn't sound like an endeavor prone to success either. He seemed to be confident he was going to get out, and once he did, he would hurt me. I believed him. Suddenly I had an idea. I grabbed the notepad and pen Phoenix had used earlier from the table and quickly jotted down some things. I thought about asking if he'd calm down, but I suppose that question wouldn't need any answering. Talk to me. Is there anything I should know? I won't let you out anyways. I went back to the window, careful not to step too close to it. I tossed the notepad and pen inside before shining the beam of flashlight into the dark room. I couldn't see a thing. Phoenix must have been cowering on the floor. After a while, I could hear him moving around inside, followed by the scratching of pen and paper. A few seconds later, the notepad and pen came flying back at me. I picked them up and found the answer more, carved into the notepad, than written on it. Trash. I tried not to look afraid. At that moment, I was actually a little happy my face was frozen and pale already. I turned on my heel and went back inside. I set my phone up to charge while I began to rummage around in the kitchen pantries and fridge, grabbing whatever I thought I could survive a trip in my bag. I knew something was going to happen soon. I had to be prepared to uh, make a break for it, and once I'd flee, I knew I wouldn't be able to come back. I don't know if I mentioned it before, but there's another car outside. It's a bit beaten up, and I'm not sure if it's still in a condition fit to drive, but I figured that once push would come to shove, it'd be better than nothing. Deciding to enjoy my last few hours of peace, I laid back down, trying to ignore the thought of Phoenix pacing to and fro in the washroom that was gnawing away at the back of my mind. Just as I was beginning to slowly drift off into some dark, quiet place, somewhere between sleep and consciousness, I heard a loud thud. I shot up and spun around to find the cupboard blocking the washroom door had tipped over. This was my cue. I grabbed my bag with all of my belongings and what few supplies I had gathered in it and ran for the door only to realize that I couldn't find the car keys. I cursed under my breath as I began to go through the pockets of the coat hanging beside the door, then the drawers of the small cabinet next to the front door. If only I had started looking for them earlier, back when I had had the chance. Another loud thumping sound followed, then a creak and the noise of wood dragging over wood. A glance over to the entrance of the washroom was enough for me to realize that Phoenix was on his way out. The door was inching open, the crack growing wider and wider. He was pushing against it with all his might. I could hear him groan from within the darkness of his makeshift cell. Soon it would be big enough for him to slip through. I began to panic. My mind was racing and my breathing was quickening, my hands frantically combing through the mess of small objects. My shaking fingers finally made contact with something cold and hard. It was the key. I tore it out and staggered to my feet, proceeding to dash outside. The second the night air was engulfing me again, I could hear a final wooden clatter, followed by a mix of a deep, angry growl and a scream of rage as Phoenix burst through the door. I sprinted out to the car, ripped open the door and hopped inside, hurrying to lock up the vehicle. Turning the key in the ignition, the engine rumbled to life, but to my surprise, the car suddenly lurched forward, and I was thrown out of my seat, my head painfully connecting with the steering wheel and triggering the car horn. 
The ear-piercing sound made me jump, and I pressed myself into my seat, noticing a throbbing pain where my forehead had made contact with the steering wheel. I knew I was hurt. I also knew I was a bad driver. Even without my fear and headache, still, I tried to get the car started again anyways. I managed to back out of the space where Phoenix had parked it in front of the cabin. The faceless man himself was standing right beside the doorway now, staring at me with wide eyes. I tried to ignore him. It was almost awkward. I couldn't tell if he was amused at my helplessness or debating when to shatter the windshield and drag me back outside. I tried to turn the car around to somehow get back out into that little backwoods road we had taken to get to the cabin, but I didn't get very far. I remember feeling the impact of my head colliding with what must have either been the back of the seat or the side window or maybe even the ceiling. My vision blurred and for a few seconds, everything turned black altogether. I remember thinking I needed to get out of the car, my fingers searching around on the dashboard. I finally found the right button to unlock the doors. I pushed the one right beside me open with some effort groaning as I basically flopped against it in an attempt to place my feet on the ground outside. Before I could do so, however, I felt myself being grabbed by the shoulders and flung into the dirt. I groaned and looked up to find Phoenix towering above me. I didn't have any time to get up and run anymore. I was crying again, tears running down my dead, numb, dull face. There was no use in fighting back anymore. I let him pick me up and carry me back into the cabin, where he carelessly dropped me onto the floor. I winced when my chin bounced off of it. He then turned around and locked the door behind us. I don't know what I expected him to do to me, but what followed was different. He took up a pen and paper again and sat down at the table. Every time I tried to get up from where I was lying, he'd stand up, come over and kick me so hard I'd scream, and then I'd stop trying. I watched him through a veil of tears, from my spot on the floor, watched as he filled the blank pages before him one by one. My shoulders were shaking slightly, moved by my quiet sobs, yet not by much. Even lifting and lowering them the tiniest bit hurt like hell. When he was finally done, he gathered his writings, got up from his chair and came over to me, proceeding to grab me by the arm and roughly pull me to my feet. He shoved me onto the sofa and handed me the papers. Most of what he wrote has to do with what he's going to do to me when this is all over. But the middle part is pretty interesting. We're going back to my parents' house. Trying to kill you really screwed me over emotionally, but it also made me think a couple of things over. And Dana and Michael won't be able to use me for their screwed-up little games anyways, since Marlene wants a female body. Therefore, if we go and try to end things... I have your assistance without risking my own life. We're going to go back to the road now. We might not be as lucky as we were the first time, but I'm sure a car will come by eventually. We'll take it back home, and there, we're going to confront my mother and father. If something goes wrong, I'll flee and leave you at their mercy. Maybe they even know of a way of giving me back my face. If that's the case... I'll leave you to them in exchange for it. If we have to use force and manage to subdue them, and we somehow succeed and make it out alive, I'll kill you as soon as Michael and Dana are dead. So there's that. 
The rest is just him rambling. I don't want to spare you the details. I'm not sure how things will go when we meet Michael and Dana again. We're ready to set out this very evening. I'm really hungry right now, but I'm too afraid to ask Phoenix for food. Therefore, all I can do is sit on the sofa writing this, watching him eat in the kitchen. Whatever is going to happen tonight, I know I won't make it out alive. I'm trying to keep at least the tiniest shred of hope, but I'm starting to lose faith. I really don't have much to look forward to. Shortly after my last update, the faceless man and I set out for the home of the people who had once been our parents. He ushered me out the door, shoving me ahead, as we walked through the woods into the direction of the dark forest road. Phoenix had taken a rifle that had probably once belonged to the old man who took him in with him, but he hid it, and himself, in a bush once we had reached the roadside, in order to avoid coming off as even more suspicious. Instead of standing up in the middle of the road, like he had last time, though, he grabbed me by the shoulders and guided me out onto the street before pressing me down. I understood. I didn't like the idea of playing dead at all, but I knew that if I angered him any more than I already had, there would probably be no need to pretend at all in no time. I laid down, the rough pavement scraping my palms and knees. I turned to face away from the driving direction, my cheek resting on the strangely warm, hard ground. Maybe it would have hurt, but I still couldn't quite feel anything on or around my face, at least not in the way that I used to. And so we waited. I couldn't see Phoenix, where he was hiding behind me. I couldn't see the car coming either, but I could hear it. More so I could feel it through the road, or at least I thought I could. My heart was hammering in my chest, thoughts of all the ways this plan could go wrong running through my head. What if who was ever in the car wouldn't see me? What if they'd run me over? I stifled a breath of relief when the car stopped a few feet ahead of me. I could hear the doors being thrown open and hurried footsteps approaching. I felt a sudden twinge in my heart upon realizing what was going to happen. Phoenix hadn't just taken the rifle for Dana and Michael. In his state, who knew what he'd do to these people? I could only hope they had to be alive for us to use their faces. Still, the thought of them falling for our trap somehow had me even more disturbed than the last time. I prayed that there would just be two of them. Maybe then he wouldn't hurt them too much. Oh my god, is she dead? The high-pitched voice of a young woman called out. Hold on, stay back. A male voice responded, this one much closer to me. And there it was. A third voice. My blood ran cold. Dude, get back here. Call an ambulance or something. Don't touch her. The man near me simply gave a disapproving grunt before bending down beside me. I could feel his hand on my shoulder. Miss? He asked softly, his fingers wrapped around my upper arm. Please don't turn me around, I remember thinking. I wish he'd listened to his friend. I didn't bother keeping my eyes shut as he rolled me onto my back. For a split second, we gazed right into each other's eyes, his growing wide and shocked. Damn it, he gasped, falling on his behind. I wanted to warn him, shout, scream, but my rigid lips only parted enough to press out a single word. I'm not sure he understood. It came out just as slow and distorted and mangled as Phoenix's threat prior to all this. Run. The man staggered to his feet. He looked terrified. At the very same moment, I heard another car door slam. My head jerked around and I found a woman walk up to us, 
from presumably the passenger side. I cursed inwardly. What the hell's going? She fell silent upon spotting me. Run, I repeated, louder this time. Get away. I added, but it was pointless. Either they couldn't understand me, or they weren't paying attention. It was too late anyways. Phoenix had come up behind them, rifle in hand. The panicked screeching from the man in the back seat pierced the air, as the faceless man grabbed the stranger by the neck and slammed his head against the hood of the car. The woman stood frozen in place, her mouth hanging open and her eyes wide. I got up as quickly as I could and rushed towards her, shoving her towards the car, all the while repeating my futile gurgles trying to tell her to flee. The phoenix was faster, and I watched in horror as he punched her square across the face and shoved her to the ground with such force that she lost consciousness and stayed down. Suddenly I could hear the engine of the stranger's car sputter, blinking against its headlights. I spotted who must have been the third man of the group in the driver's seat. He probably climbed over there from a spot in the back seat. He appeared to have trouble getting the vehicle moving, but what was worse was that he hadn't thought of locking the doors. Phoenix had reached him within seconds, and I watched in horror as he tore the door open, grabbed the young man and dragged him outside. He was kicking and screaming, struggling in the faceless man's grip. Realizing my chance, I lunged forward, grabbed Phoenix's arm and tried to get the rifle away from him. He growled as he batted at me, attempting to shake me off, but I had latched onto his side with all my might. My fingers locked around the large weapon. I finally managed to pry it from his fist. At the very same moment, the stranger broke free from his clutch and took off running into the opposite direction. I tried to scream at him to get back inside the car, but the second I opened my mouth, Phoenix struck me. He'd hit me before, but this blow was the hardest yet. I crumbled down onto the rough pavement, dropping the rifle, and Phoenix snatched it up before I could react. I reached out for his feet, hoping to make him stumble, fall, or just to temporarily distract him, anything to keep him from getting the chance to shoot. But he was fast. Again, too fast. I squeezed my eyes shut when I heard the noise. The gunshot was loud and piercing. I prayed he'd missed, but the low sound of a body hitting the ground confirmed my worst fears. Phoenix immediately ran up to him, bent down to check his pulse, and, after dropping his wrist again, heaved him up from the ground to throw him into a ditch by the roadside. He then ripped out bits from a bush, as well as twigs from the trees, and used them to cover the body. When he returned, he gestured for me to get to work on the woman's face. She wasn't much older than me, and just a bit more tan, so once I had absorbed her features, they didn't look too much out of place. I grimaced, raised my brows, and stretched my lips a few times as I watched the faceless man do the same after feeling up the driver's face. He loaded them into the car's trunk before motioning for me to get in. I moved to climb into the passenger seat, only for him to shake his head. Back seat, he ordered. You think I'm stupid or something? not letting you sit where you can reach the steering wheel. I'll skip out on the details of the car ride. There was hardly a single word spoken during the time we spent driving back to our parents' house. The closer we got, the more anxious I became, and by the time we reached my former home, I had goosebumps and my hair stood on end. How are we going to get in? 
I asked breathlessly. Phoenix just shrugged. He ushered me ahead before him, pushing me closer to the front door. It was nighttime, and knowing Dana and Michael, they were probably already asleep by then. I figured if we kept quiet, we could have a chance at going unnoticed. We would probably either have to destroy the lock somehow or break in through a window, which would probably draw attention. It was then that I noticed that the door was actually open a crack. I frowned, tentatively reaching out and pushing against it with just one finger. It swung open with a creak. I looked over my shoulder. Phoenix appeared to be just as surprised as I was. I put a finger to my lips before sliding inside. The first thing that hit me was the smell. The insides of the house reeked. I couldn't place the smell at first, but was certain I recognized the metallic scent of blood somewhere within. Walking down the familiar hallway, I could feel a lump in my throat. Something was wrong, and Phoenix followed close behind me until I came to a halt in the living room. The sofa, the TV, the small table and cabinet. They all looked the same at first glance. My heart almost stopped when I spotted the silhouettes of Dana and Michael on their couch in the darkness. From where we were standing, they had their backs turned to us. At first I thought they were asleep since neither of them did so much as move an inch upon our entrance. I slowly rounded the sofa, with their son doing the same. I'm not sure what he thought when he looked into the glazed, wide eyes of his dead parents. It was hard to tell. Then again, I myself was busy observing his reaction, more than experiencing one myself. I don't know why. In hindsight, it could have been the shock since at that moment, something clicked and nothing felt real anymore. It only began to sink in a lot later, that these were the two people who had taken me in as a child, who had raised and shown me so much affection that I had truly believed they actually had loved me. And now, they were sitting there, right in front of me, with their throats ripped out. Phoenix dropped to the ground, crossing his legs almost casually, like he wanted to get comfortable regarding them while I still stood frozen in place. Hey, he suddenly muttered, turning around in place and resting his palm on the floor where he was sitting. There's stuff on here. I bent down to look. He was right. There were crude symbols drawn on the floor and what appeared to be chalk. Some looked like mere scribbles at best, but the biggest one, the one surrounding them all, was a large upturned star with a circle in it. In its very middle sat a tiny metal bowl. There was something lying in there, and when I picked it up, I found it to be a thin white velvet choker. I've seen that thing before, Phoenix muttered, frowning thoughtfully. I haven't, was it? Marlene's. He rose to his feet, dragging his soul across the chalk markings. I've seen this before, too. All of this. It was there, when they tried to summon her into me, I'm sure of it. Oh well. Too bad this was a lost cause. Gonna be your turn now. I hope you know that. Did you ever think about how your entire purpose to them was to bring back my sister? Such a human waste. Have you been here ever since? The house, I mean. I asked. Walking over to the cabinet, I opened the upper drawer. Phoenix was still busy inspecting the symbol on the floor. Like, not just my room. No, why? He leaned the rifle against the side of the couch. I just wanted to know whether you knew where Michael keeps his guns. He must have realized it the second I said it, but by the time he looked up at the handgun I was pointing at him, I had already pulled the trigger. 
When I said I'd never held a weapon like that before in my last recording, I meant long guns. The bullet went straight into his chest. When he dropped to his knees and then fell down, I put another one into his head. I didn't like it, but I had learned my lesson the last time he got up again. Of course, that didn't mean it was all over yet. At that point, I already had a vague idea of what had happened to Dana and Michael, Marlene, or whatever else had reached out to them from beyond. I killed them. They didn't seem to be around anymore, but I had to be sure. I grabbed some cleaning supplies from the kitchen pantry and went about wiping off the symbols. It took me some time, but when I was done, the floor was squeaky clean. I tried to get off some of the blood as well, which was arguably harder. I then grabbed the choker to examine it. There seemed to be nothing off about it at first glance, but knowing it had been used to summon this thing made me see it in a different light. It's white. It looked a lot less innocent with that in the back of my head. I didn't have much to go off of, but I tried to piece together a theory from what I knew, and then a solution. I went through every single closet in the house, tore out all the pieces of female clothing I found, and carried them out into the backyard. The high bushes and fence thankfully obscured the heap of fabric I was building up. Then came the photo albums. One by one, I threw them into the pile. Everything and anything that could depict, have meaning to, or once possibly belonged to Marlene, it all went straight to the pile. Then I started dragging the bodies outside. First Dana, then Michael, and at last, Phoenix. I shut their eyes. They almost looked peaceful now. It stung a bit, knowing how much time they'd spent tormenting themselves and everyone around them, just to keep this dream alive to bring back someone they loved. I placed them on the pile, hiding them underneath some of the clothing. I shoved the rifle and handgun in there as well. I proceeded to gather all the bottles of flammable liquids from around the house. Every single one, I emptied over the heap. Finally, after all was assembled and stacked up, I took Dana's lighter from inside the house and set the thing ablaze. It took me a few attempts, but soon, flames lit up and began licking at the heap of traces of Marlene. I'm on my way to the cabin right now. I'm just putting a small stop since I was getting dizzy and had to throw up. The stranger's car is still outside our former house, but I open the trunk, so as soon as the man and woman Phoenix put in there wake up, they'll be able to climb out and hopefully call for help. I know I should probably get my head looked at someday soon. It's more plausible that I might have sustained a concussion. First, I need to check back at Phoenix's place, though. I have to know if Marlene's old clothing, which she arrived in, is still there. I have to know if Marlene's old clothing, which she arrived in, is still around there somewhere. If it is, I'll burn it as well. I'll probably give Bill a proper burial, too, if I find the time. I can't just leave him in the freezer, after all. I don't know what I'm going to do with myself afterwards. Maybe I should go to the cops, or wait for them to find me, in case that's ever going to happen. What will I tell them if they do? Maybe I can be truthful. Then they'd probably blame it on my head injury. Not that I'd care. Something beautiful is happening right now. As I sit and type, small flakes of hard, mannequin-white skin are starting to fall from my face. A few minutes ago, I looked into the rearview mirror, and peeled off an entire patch from my cheek. It was as big as my palm. I found soft, pink skin underneath. 
It's still fresh and vulnerable, but it's mine. My very own rosy, flexible, movable skin. I want to thank everyone who's encouraged me thus far. My name is Christine, and I have a face again. <laughs>